0: Okay, so now the lesson that I did on Amos stirred up some afflictive emotions, which is always a good thing. I, I think that that's the mark of a good lesson. But in no small part, it stirred up the emotion because of the craziness that's going on out there in this uh, political season that we're in the middle of. Because when anything that we do here in church sounds like that, well, it can feel like uh, it's a a violation because this ought to be a place that's safer than that. And so I uh, have talked to several people about their afflictive emotions that have come up, and I've been furiously taking notes on the things that they've said. And then while I was away on vacation, I read five books that had to do with a really kind of a broad background of how to talk about it. And I'm kind of energized about following up on that lesson. Um, however not today I think we can do better than just get along I think what we can do is begin to learn from people who have different perspectives one book I read had to do with understanding the five underpinning morals that define all of psychological morality and the difference between which one of these we highlight and how it affects our um, views of society I think we can learn tremendously from one another and so we can do better But we'll do that later because right now we have to have kind of a community meeting. And the community meeting is based on this concept. When it comes to talking about sex, having it with just mom and dad in the privacy of your own home is not as effective as having a community that shares a collective understanding of a shared language. Uh, Shared images, shared metaphors, uh, shared values and understanding of human sexuality. So we're going to talk about sex. So yeah, religion, politics, and sex. We're going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) So now, as you heard during the announcements, the the teens are going to be starting their sex module. And I want to talk a little bit this week and next about what they're going to be talking about, and I want to make the case that I just mentioned, that framing sexuality for our young people goes much better when we do it as a community. However, there aren't any agreed-upon sexual norms out there in our society right now. We have traditional religious sexual norms, which is don't have sex till you get married, and then we have the... uh, Everybody screws everybody as long as nobody gets hurt. Sexual norms that kind of define the Wild West of the way that we do things. And these aren't working because if you look at some of the numbers out there, we are not doing well in relationships. But the funny thing is, don't have sex till you get married. That's not working either because even people who are devout and are buying into it are not doing it. Uh, There's something going on, which we'll see in a moment, that affects this moment in history and why we are going through this topsy-turvy tumult uh, that we're going through around sexuality. But the net effect of it is there isn't something that we inherit from mom and dad, that who inherited it from grandma and grandpa, who inherited it from grandma and grandpa, that we can appeal to and say, let's just do what everybody did. Like many things that are happening in this moment of worldview upheaval, we're having to rethink the most fundamental basics of how we do what we do, and in this instance, around our sexuality. So <clears throat> my hope is that the podcast will help us clarify our thinking at a time when clear thinking is hard to come by. So I started the podcast project when several wise people in our community realized that we had not been practicing ritual together. And it turns out that for a spiritual community, ritual is kind of important. But we had stayed away from religious ritual for a long time because the traditional rituals that we would have inherited from grandma and great-grandma Uh, those were framed in the language of the worldview and in the images and metaphors of the worldview in which they were written. But that worldview has been unraveling, rapidly unraveling for at least two generations. And so wanting to reintegrate reintegrate ritual into our family life together, but doing it for uh, us in a way that could work, we decided to write some Rituals for our community. And so going back into history, we realized that most religious rituals follow the human life cycle. There are rituals for birth, and there are rituals for surviving infant mortality. Now, in our culture, that's not as big a deal, so we tie that ritual to going off to school. There are rituals for reaching puberty, uh, and there are rituals for leaving home. There are rituals for dying, and there are rituals for marrying. And so those were the first ones we tackled. There are others, but that's where we started. By the way, if you have a baby that you would like to be dedicated or uh, baptized, uh, we have a way of doing that now that works uh, in our new worldview. And so we usually do it Sundays right after church. And uh, usually you bring your family and and all the folks that are gonna be part of that. If you'd like to do that, you can just go to the contact us uh, link on the website. So as this group was working on the the puberty ritual, they asked me to write something. Given how the the worldview and social and technological changes are coming at us so rapidly, and given how they have thrown our sexual norms into topsy-turvy, if we want to celebrate young people's entrance into puberty, we need to prepare them for society's shifting sex norms. And so I started the podcast project. It would have taken me less time if I hadn't been kicked out of our denomination for writing the book, and if you hadn't voted to go with me, and if we hadn't had our building taken away, and if we hadn't moved downtown, if we hadn't worked together to renovate this space, I really would have gotten it done in a year. As it stands, it took two, but it's done now. It's all written, and it's all recorded, and it's coming out on a week-by-week basis through the fall. You can go to my website, Doughammock.com. And you can either get a, you can subscribe to get an email notification whenever a new episode comes out. Or I've got an author page on Facebook as well. If you like that page, it will inform you whenever a new a notice comes out there as well. So either way, if you want to get notified that it's coming. So next week, as I said, Angie's going to start teaching, or not next week, next month. Angie's going to start teaching the sex module to the teens. And she and John and Julie have been working together to adapt what I said in 32 episodes into eight weeks that are relevant for our teens. And so today and next week, I want to give you a basic outline of the project. Uh, I didn't really write it for kids, I wrote it for people who love kids, and I wrote it for grown ups, and I wrote it in grown up language to help us shape our thinking clearly. The hope is that if we shape our thinking clearly, we can take that and translate it into these relationships that are significant in our lives. And my hope is that uncles and aunts and grandmas and grandpas and teen workers and people who are part of our community will have a shared understanding and a shared language, shared images to have discussions about sexuality. My hope is to normalize the process of talking about sex in a communal context. And that is weird in our culture because we don't know how to do it because of some of the things that we'll see today, sex is dirty. And if you bring up the topic, then you have violated a social code. And that, I'm going to suggest in a moment, is part of the problem. And so how we get past that to the place where we can actually have safe, uh, helpful conversations about sexuality as a community is important. So... In the project, I drew uh, a great deal from history and biology and neurology, anthropology to help us frame the wisdom of religion, but to do it in a language that people can access because, to be honest, religious language around sexuality is pretty inaccessible to most people in our culture. But that's too bad because religion has accumulated a rich body of insight and a rich body of wisdom into human sexuality. Religion has insight into the comprehensive framework in which our sexuality best operates. Religion has a tremendous amount of insight into the whole context of the sexual experience and how to give it the space and the time that it needs for important psychological and emotional and relational metrics to be hit as we move forward in our sexuality. We have great insight, religion does, into how the sexual journey unfolds in a way that makes strong pair bonds. Because to be honest, uh, we don't make strong pair bonds as a society. And a lot of that has to do with how we practice our sexuality. Uh, a year ago or so, we, there was a, something in the News and Observer that said in Wake County, we had now hit uh, a milestone in Wake County for divorces per marriages. Every 10 marriages, seven divorces. Now that doesn't mean that 10 marriages yielded seven divorces because a lot of those divorces were second and third divorces. But it also didn't count the people who live together and their relationship doesn't work. And so they separate. And so we could be at seven. It might be that seven relationships doesn't go the distance. And so it's not going well. And part of the reason it's not going well is the way that we practice our sexuality. And the thing is, religion has deep insight into how to build pair bonds that last. Religion has long understood that our sexuality is a much bigger reality than getting into one another's pants. Our deep inner drive for love is born of our sexuality. Our deep inner life for beauty, that creative impulse, the passionate impulse about life and what we make when we make life is rooted deeply in our sexuality, the drive to connect deeply. All these things are rooted in our sexuality. It's much bigger than hooking up the plumbing. In the podcast, we explore how human sexuality unfolds as a whole, as a comprehensive whole, but how we as a society often reduce it to just a part. The project explores five Greek words for making love. Mania, which is the Greek word for that time when you fall head over heels in love and you just kind of, your mind flips. Eros, the romantic, the erotic, the dreamy, the passionate part of making love. Philos, the friendship part of making love, the deep bonding part of love, the shared history the shared experience part of love and pragma, where we get the word pragmatic, <clears throat> the Greeks understood that the way that one way we make love is by creating deep attachments to one another, and we do that in very practical ways by setting up a household together, by mingling our finances together, by figuring out our careers together, by figuring out our dietary needs and our food and how we cook together and how we budget and how we raise kids. We, by doing these very pragmatic things, we create a life that is not your life and it is not my life. We have created this new reality called our life. And when we create our life, we blend our lives into this shared reality that strengthens the attachment that we have to one another. And the Greeks had the insight to see that this is a profound dimension of making love. The fifth fifth Greek word for making love, many church folks would have heard uh, it is the word agape, and it is the love of the elder. Now, if you grew up in church, you might have been taught that that agape is the love of God, which is certainly an appropriate application of that word, but it's not really what the word means. The word means that there is a part of us that learns to love in a way that has nothing to do with the beloved. In other words, what the beloved does do or doesn't do doesn't matter. We love because it has become our nature to love. And that's what elders do. They love because it has simply become their nature to love. We love our children if they behave well or if they behave badly. There's something that happens to us that it has simply become us and our nature to love, which is why we use that as an application to uh, describe the love of God. But it is the love that happens in us. And the wisdom of religion has been to take all of these layers of lovemaking and insist that we keep them together as a comprehensive whole. The wisdom of religion has been to weave these layers of lovemaking together into a unified oneness. And most importantly, the wisdom of religion has been to not separate the erotic out from the whole. In other words, the wisdom of religion tells us to not do what our society does. And what our society does is to separate eroticism out from the whole package and make it a standalone product. And it is not a standalone product because our sexuality really is a connected wholeness kind of thing. Erotic love works well for our human health and well-being when it is connected to all of the parts of lovemaking. It works very poorly, however, when it is disconnected. Now, in the first seven episodes of the podcast, I explored this unified field as a oneness instead of a two-ness, as you've heard me say, but in this case, instead of a fiveness, to look at this as a comprehensive whole as opposed to individual parts of love making. So, religion has accumulated a great deal of insight and wisdom about human sexuality. And it's a wisdom that we want to be clear in our own understanding so that as parents and as friends and as a community, we can model this wisdom and we can share this wisdom and we can pursue this wisdom together as a whole as opposed to a bunch of individuals trying to apply this wisdom. That's my hope for us as a community. I especially want this to be clear in our minds because our kids and we have been for some time now taught a very different sexual curriculum. It's a curriculum that conditions us to see sex as the act, to see sex as coitus. And it's a very powerful message. And our young people absorb this limiting definition of sexuality every day, every day. And it's a very powerful message. And when they absorb that message that sex is the part as opposed to the whole, it then helps us, causes us to miss the larger picture. Consequently, we and they make our sexual decisions blinded to the everything connected nature of lovemaking. So wisdom has a great deal to offer at this moment in history. But even though we do, and even though we've accumulated a great deal of wisdom, not many people can hear what we have to say. And the reason that we Uh, aren't heard, which I spent a lot of time exploring in the podcast, uh, can be traced all the way back to the 2nd century. And it's Plato's fault. One of the episodes that I titled was uh, Dirty Sex, parentheses. thanks a lot Plato. (laughs) Because it wasn't really Plato, it was really the Neoplatonists. It really had to do with a worldview shift when the Christian uh, empire Uh, was formed and Christianity moved from Jerusalem to Rome. I've talked about that in other contexts many times. But when Christianity came to Rome, it entered into a very different worldview, uh, a worldview that separated reality into layers, the highest layer, the second layer, and then this one that we live in. We live in this reality of a physical world of length and width and height. And in this world we have uh, houses and we have horses and we have trees and that's the lowest layer of reality. There's another layer of reality that is the non-physical dimension and that's where we have the idealized version in a non-physical way of houses and trees and horses And that's where the realm of forms, it's called, that's where the real action is. Here we're living a derivative copy. We're living in this corrupted version of true, true, and real, real here in the physical world. And up there in the non-physical reality, that's where the real action is. And then, not relevant now, but then there's a third layer that's called the highest form, it is the good. And that's kind of where we associate God. But what it basically did is it said that the physical world is at best derivative and really more corrupt. Again, in several lessons and in the podcast itself, I talk about how this distortion has infected religion and keeps cropping up generation after generation, keeps distorting things again and again because the world of Jesus, the world of the Hebrew worldview, this world was made of the very breath of God. It is the divine, you know, uh, I think... Browning, one of the poets talked about sucking the juices of the earth and finding the divine in the juices of the earth. There is something very profound about the physicality of our life that is rooted in the breath of God. But that's not how we picked it up. When we moved from Jerusalem to Rome, we picked up the dirtiness of the physical world. And nothing is more physical than our bodies. And of our bodies, the most physical part of all is our sexuality, our sexuality. And so we picked up some dirty sex instincts about 1,800 years ago, and of those instincts we picked up the lady sex is dirtiest of all instinct, which has led to a tremendous amount of misogyny and has led to a tremendous amount of distortion of our sexuality of all kinds, and it shows up all the time. And even though most Christians today know that it is not cool to talk about sex being dirty, and even though we say all kinds of words about how beautiful sex is, that's only made the problem worse. Because now what we do is on the surface, we talk a good game about how beautiful sex is. But underneath the surface where our instincts originate, we are being pushed by this 1,800-year-old distortion. And until we deal with our dirty sex instincts, we are not going to be heard. And all of the wisdom that we have to offer as a religious tradition will go unoffered. So the world watching us knows that we've lost our way the world is actually looking for a way to practice sexuality differently. We'll see in a moment, there's a great big megaphone over here that comes from our marketers, but the world is looking for a way to make sex, make love work. And so when they check in with us, they see our dirty sex instincts and they say, well, they don't have it and they move on. And so until we deal with these instincts that interrupted us 1800 years ago and keep cropping up from time to time, nobody will listen. In fact, we're not even listening to ourselves. The numbers tell us that the sexual practices of devout religious young people are not statistically different from the non-religious. Again, there's a bunch of studies that I cite in the podcast. You can hear about that. It's really interesting stuff. But it's difficult to overstate how profoundly dirty sex instincts have shaped the religious sex ed curriculum. We do purity retreats and we have purity rings and we say modest is hottest and these things sound good when we frame them uh, in uh, our, our language to our young people. But then when you dig underneath them, you realize the harsh harmfulness that is carried underneath these pretty words and you realize that the uh, toxic effects that it has on our human sexuality can't be overstated, how harsh and hard that is, so... If we're going to access the accumulated wisdom of religion, we're going to need to deal head on with how badly we have lost our way. And how the toxic drip of dirty sex instincts have been dripping away for 18 centuries since Clement of Alexandria, who's one of the worst dirty sex offenders in our tradition. Some of the stuff that he said about feminine sexuality was just wild. I can't believe that made it into our tradition. And then somebody got up Somebody as honored as Augustine stands up and quotes Clement, and I think, oh, God, you're just doubling down on some really crazy stuff. But anyway, dirty sex has hijacked the religious sex ed curriculum. Consequently, few, if any, can access that wisdom. And we really need that wisdom. Family and religion are kind of society's best bet for a well-formed sex ed curriculum. However, family is under an inordinate amount of stress right now, having to do with economic factors and social factors and the requirement of rethinking sex ed to work in this newly framed reality that has just washed up into our lives so profoundly. It's so demanding and the family is so taxed right now that it's really asking people to make bricks without straw to rethink sexuality and train young people. The family's having a very hard time. And religion has been marginalized because of these dirty sex instincts. And so consequently, of the five institutions that make up each society, family and religious institutions are kind of out. Consequently, we're left with government or education. But we live in such a highly partisan uh, environment right now that no school board and no uh, governmental institution could do anything except pacify their base and say the right things, but they can't do anything and they can't say anything. So really, there's only one social institution that's hard at work on framing a sex ed curriculum for us, and those are our economic institutions. Those are the people that are working really hard to sell us stuff, and these people, have realized that sex sells, or more accurately, erotic part of sexuality sells. Because two things go deep inside of us, fear and sexuality. And if you're paying attention, everybody who wants to sell you something from a political agenda all the way over to toothbrush is trying to either touch fear or touch sex. And so they're banging away on those two notes again and again and again. Because if you want to go deep into someone's consciousness, those two will get you there. And that's what's happening. Those sexual, uh, the, the sexual curriculum that is being defined by our marketers is the prevailing norm for us as a culture. And the people who are making those norms are singularly disinterested in the whole human of sexuality, they're only interested in the part that sells. And for that, eroticism is ideal because eroticism is visual and it lends itself to a screen. And most things that are sold to us are sold to us on a screen. And eroticism is fast and it grabs us quickly. And so consequently, if you wanna grab somebody fast in a 30 second spot and you wanna do it on a screen, boy, eroticism is ideally suited for your purposes. And if you're trying to sell somebody something that will work. It'll go deep and it'll get there fast. And so we're inundated with a curriculum about our sexuality that is formed by a mission that has nothing to do with human well-being. It's informed by a mission that has to do with selling cars or selling shampoo. It's not informed by the wholeness that makes up our human sexuality. And the thing is, religion knows all about that. And religion has known about this for a long, long time. Religion has a rich body of wisdom to tell us how to handle it and how to stand against the exploitive use of sexuality to sell us stuff. Religion knows how to gather into communities and to use those community networks to strengthen and support one another toward the long view of human well-being. And to put our eroticism into a context that supports it instead of exploiting it and in the process undercutting us and undercutting our well-being. But it really doesn't matter that we have this rich body of wisdom because nobody's listening. We're not even listening. So there's too much from the podcast. I thought this would be easy to do these two lessons. As a matter of fact, I was talking to the church council and said, I really think we should just do it in one lesson. This could be so easy. And then I sat down to do it and I realized, how do you get all this stuff into one lesson or two lessons and I can't do it. But let me just share this one thing and it was this. Of the five layers of experience that the Greeks classified under the heading, making love, the one that seems the least sexy is the Greek word pragma. Figuring out budgets. <laughs> how sexy is that? sharing household chores. These are not sexy things. But Helen Palmer, she uh, advertises herself as a sexual anthropologist. She is the consultant for Match.com to help them develop their strategy for how to help people make love connections. She's also done several TED Talks. She was teaching a class on keeping passion, sexual passion alive through the years. And as she was giving this talk, a man in the audience was from China, and he said... Why would you do that? <laughs> why would you try and keep passion alive through the years? Or why would you try and keep eroticism alive in, through all the years? Why would you spend all of that energy trying to prop up the erotic? Because everyone knows that eroticism comes and eroticism goes. It just does. Everyone knows that eroticism waxes and wanes through the years. It will come again but it will also go again. And anybody who's ever been in the throes of erotic passion knows that, yeah, it's, it might last for a few months. It might last for a long season, but inevitably you got to get back to, you know, going to the grocery store and doing that kind of stuff. So if we're going to try and strengthen something, this man said, it ought not to be eroticism. We ought to be strengthened the attachment part of love, the pragma part of love. Do that, strengthen the attachment and eroticism will have a place to return to when it waxes. I guess coming back, you would think waxing, when it waxes, when it, when it returns, it'll have a place to return to strengthen the attachment. Eroticism will take care of itself. It always does. It comes, it goes. And when it comes, it comes here to this place. And Helen Palmer said, when I heard that, I just felt, culturally blind. He said, how in the world did we not see that as a society? How in the world did we not catch that? Well, we don't see it because the best and the brightest among us are not going to work to try and think about the wholeness of our human sexuality. No, the best and the brightest get up and go to work every day to try and sell us stuff. And the best tool that they have in their toolbox is the constant drumbeat of the primacy of eroticism, the selling part of sex. And so that's the message we pick up day after day after day after day. And it's the message our young people pick up day after day after day after day. Our religion knows that it's a trap. The accumulated wisdom that we've got over all these centuries tells us it's a trap. And we could talk about that if we could get a hearing, but we can't until we untangle our dirty sex instincts and the ways that they keep infecting us. Angie came up with a metaphor for teaching the whole package of sexuality to our teens, and when I turn the podcast into a book, I'm going to steal it from her. (laughs) And she used the metaphor of making toast. Because everybody knows that making toast is easy. And when Julie insisted that I share this with you today, she said, it has made it really easy for me to talk to my teenagers because we can talk about toast. (laughs) Hardly one mention of penis in the whole thing, and we're talking about everything we need to talk about. (laughs) So here's the thing. Everybody knows it's easy to make toast. Everybody knows it's easy to make love. But it turns out neither is true. Make toast, sure, it's simple, it's easy, it's fast, and it's hot. (laughs) But that's only part of making toast. In truth, toast is much harder than that because toast requires flour and yeast and water and sugar because toast requires bread. And sex, like toast, begins much further back down the chain in the process than the hot, fast, and easy part. We make love more like making bread than we do like making toast. To make toast you have to mix the ingredients, the important essential ingredients. And then you've got to give it time. Time to rise and time to expand. And then you have to beat it down and you have to knead it. And then you have to challenge it so that it has to rise to the challenge and it develops an internal strength when you do that. It has to be stressed and it has to respond to stress. It has to bounce back. It has to be shaped It has to be prepared, it has to be baked, it has to be sliced. And when all of that's done, then you're ready for the hot and fast and easy part, the toasty part of making toast. (laughs) And when society's marketing in just sells its sex, it gives us the message that making toast can be separated from making bread which works for making toast, but it doesn't work for making love because someone else can make bread for you, but no one else can make love for you. But our young people are being trained to jump right to the fast, easy, and hot part, the erotic part, without making love first, without making bread first. So when both religion and family have lost their voice, We get suckered in by the hucksters who are trying to sell us stuff, and that's what's happened to our society, and that's what's happening to our kids. We've normalized stripping the erotic part of love out and making it a standalone feature for our making love. We've separated the erotic out from friendship. It's a separate entity. We separated it out from deep and abiding commitment. We've separated it out from conflict and struggle and the character development, the stressing and the growing and the responding that is necessary to make love for a lifetime. And the thing is, religion knows better if we could get a chance to be heard, if we could untangle ourselves from our dirty sex instincts. Now next week, I wanna talk about the only part of the project that I think might ruffle some feathers. And if that, even, it would only be the feathers of those who grew up in church. Because for most of the project, I'm really just presenting the ancient wisdom of religion, but supporting it with the hard sciences and the soft sciences and trying to untangle us from our dirty sex instincts. I don't think most of the project would ruffle feathers, but one part might surprise folks who grew up in church. And that's this, <clears throat> we've got a problem in the uh, In the podcast, I call it the fifteen year problem. It used to be well, it has been in the centuries, the millennia of human civilization that we live for six, ten thousand years in agricultural societies. Agriculture is not that complex; you can Become a contributing member of society as soon as you can plow a field or raise a baby. And so we became contributing members of society in our late teens. Then came the industrial society, and it was almost about the same. As soon as you could get a job and go to work, and as soon as you could raise a baby, you were ready to be a contributing member of society. But things have changed, and it's no longer that easy to become a contributing member of society. Uh, in the Affordable Health Care Act, one of the provisions that was most uh, accepted by everyone, left and right uh, alike, was the fact that young people could stay on their parents' insurance until they were 26, which was an acknowledgement of the reality that it takes a lot longer to become ready to support yourself than it used to. And so consequently, now the age of marriage has averaged up from late teens to now almost 30, 28.6%. For women, 29.2 for men is the average age in which we marry. At the same time that that's happening, we've started to reach puberty much earlier. Who knows if it's the plastic that our food is in or milk that we drink or whatever it is. For some reason, we're reaching puberty much earlier. So now, the time between sexual maturity and the time that we're ready to settle down has gone to 15 or 16 years. The 15 or 16 years in which we are um, at our sexual prime and now religion's wisdom comes with a rule of thumb on top of it. And the rule of thumb that worked for a lot of centuries was don't have sex until you get married. Now we've got to look at that and say, well, yeah, that's not working. So what is going to work if that doesn't work? Because what's happening now is as soon as people see the rule of thumb, they throw that out and they throw out this rich body of wisdom with it. And consequently, we're not accessing the wisdom of religion because of the dirty sex instincts, but also because of a rule of thumb that no longer works effectively. So what are we gonna do about that? And that's gonna ruffle some feathers because we have to think about that. We have gotta be able to prepare for that. But that's next week. For this, I want you to hear today. Our kids need a truer, better, picture of sexuality than they're getting on a day-to-day basis. They need something better, richer, more profound, more human than the marketing machine is giving them today. Our young people need to grow up in communities where sex is not a forbidden topic. They need to grow up in communities where sexuality is talked about and where language is shared about it. Because they're getting that message out here. And if we just are polite society and don't talk about it here, well, then we're just abandoning them to the marketers, to the hucksters. So we've got to learn to talk about it. We've got to learn to tell our sexual stories. You know, when I was writing that, Julie was editing, and she said, oh, my God, what are you talking about? Tell our kids our sexual stories? We've got to figure out how to do that in a way that's safe and works for them. Because they're getting all kinds of sexual narratives out there. We've got to tell them about our mistakes and help them learn from them. We've got to tell them about our successes. We've got to develop a community that has a shared language that's rooted in this ancient wisdom. And we've got to understand that sex is so much bigger than what happens when we get into bed with each other. Understand how to talk freely about the whole, comprehensive whole. We have to be informed and have an understanding. The reason I spent so much time working on this was to give us a foundation to stand on so we could talk to our kids and say, let me tell you, I'm speaking with some expertise here. I'm speaking with some authority here. And I'm telling you, that's not going to work. It's going to feel great for a few months, but in the long run, it's going to hurt you. And so we have to be able to draw from a case that's rooted in our humanity to be able to talk about that. And we have to make a case to our young people that's good enough for them to be able to be suspicious of the message that the hucksters are selling them. So I hope you'll encourage your teens to come and be part of this uh, uh, module, and I hope that you will listen to the podcast. I hope that you will work hard to kind of internalize how these principles apply and how they work in your context with the young people that you are around, if you are a grandparent or an uncle or an aunt or if you're a youth worker or if you have children of your own And I hope that you will uh, allow the wisdom of religion to shape your sexual journey as well as, as a community to help it shape our young people's sexual journeys. So Lord, I pray that it would be so among us as a community. In Jesus' name, amen.